Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all Canada's most irreverent talk show here. It is Valentine's Day. I decided to put on my, I don't even know what color this is. It's like, uh, let me Google before I say it. Uh, it's kind of a, not really a fuchsia. Fuchsia is more pink-like. It's a, I'm just imagining Ross from Friends screaming faded salmon. It's a, it's a purple shirt. It's not red, but I've got like a little Valentine's red undershirt. So I, have I put you in a romantic mood yet? This is what romance looks like. How I ended up getting married, I have no idea, but I try not to question that. In any event, good to have you tuned in to the program here, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Busy day. It's become a busy day. We'll have our good friend David Millard Haskell on the show in about 30 minutes time to talk about his report on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why they do not uh, cause there to be more inclusion, more diversity, or more equity. And in fact, they often have adverse consequences on these things. Uh, we will also have to have a conversation about this ridiculous thing that Stephen Gilbo has said, which I realize is a very, very large uh, category. So I should narrow it down a little bit more. The ridiculous thing this week has to do with Rhodes and his position on Rhodes, which probably wouldn't shock you, but we'll talk about it anyway. And it is because it is Valentine's Day. Again, nothing more romantic than it being the two-year anniversary of Justin Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act. So we'll chat about that with our good friend Tom Morazzo. That's coming up in about 12 minutes thereabouts. But uh, Stephen Gilbo was doing his favorite thing. He was speaking in Montreal before a group of uh, activists and advocates in the public transit world. And what he was talking about with them was why we need to go all in on public transit. This is like home field advantage, if ever there was one. He is talking to them all, discussing the idea of climate change and public transit. Uh, we all need to walk more, he said. The government's spending more money so that people can walk more. I don't know why government grants are required for walking. I guess just to come up with a a trail of sorts that you can walk down. But then he said the following, and I want to read exactly what he said, because this will become, as you'll learn in a few moments, a, a bit of a difficult thing to square with what he later claimed he said. The quote, our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure. Of course, we will continue to be there for cities, provinces, and territories to maintain the existing network, but there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. The analysis we have done is that the network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs we have, and thanks to a mix of investment in active and public transit and territorial planning and densification, we can very well achieve our goals of economic, social, and human development without more enlargement of the road network. So he's saying that the road we have enough roads we don't need more roads yeah if you want to repave the existing roads fine but the roads we have are good enough he says we should take the money that is regularly invested in asphalt and concrete and instead put it into fighting climate change and adapting to its impact so Stephen Gilbo, we don't need more roads and he said to put a finer point on this that the problem with roads is if you build more roads, people will want to drive on them and roads encourage car use. Yeah. Okay. 
So we have a little bit of a problem here. Canada has a very ambitious goal when it comes to increasing immigration and increasing the population size. We have a, a country that wants to bring in uh, about 1.5 million people over the next three years. It stands to reason that some of those people will want to drive on our roads. So for population growth alone, we need to be talking about the way that we move people. I live in London, Ontario. It's about a two-hour drive. Well, in theory, a two-hour drive from Toronto, although oftentimes it can be a three, three-and-a-half, at some points even four-hour drive if you want to get from uh, London to downtown Toronto because there need to be more lanes on the road in the absence of other options. I would be fine with a high-speed rail option that gets me from London to Toronto. There is a price tag on that that would probably make a lot of people bristle. We have a society and a culture in this country that is built around driving and built around roads. What Stephen Gilbo is talking about here is wanting to effectively socially engineer the population out of wanting to drive. Because, well, if we don't give them roads to drive on, they won't want to drive. He wants to make driving such a miserable process and a miserable ordeal that no one does it. And the way you can make that happen is by not giving the people roads, which is like, it's the old joke of libertarians that, you know, when a libertarian says government shouldn't fund anyone, someone says, but my roads. And now the federal government is literally saying, well, we don't even want to fund the roads. So Stephen Gilbo gets called on this this morning while he's at the House of Commons walking around. And it was uh, David Aiken of Global News that decided to put his quote to him. And Stephen Gilbo decides to go with the old, I never said that excuse. Take a look. That's not. That's not what I said. Yes, it is. Wait, I can read it back. What, what, what I have said is that the solutions to our transport challenge passed by many different things, including massive investment in public transit, including investment in electrification of transportation, and of course we're funding roads. We have, we have programs to fund roads. What we have said, and, and maybe I should have been more specific in, in the past, is that we, we don't have funds for large projects like the Troisième Lien that the CAC have, has been trying to do for, for many years. Our government has government made the decision, made decision to stop investing I said, I said, in new road infrastructure. I, I, I just told you that I should have been more specific in, in, in that statement and, and specified that it was project like the Troisième Lien, which myself and many of my colleagues have said many times that the federal government had no funds for a project like this. And you can look back and you, you will see you will find numerous statements by myself and many other cabinet colleagues on, 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 on this specifically. You said we had all the roads we need. You said you had all the roads we need. <laughs> and then at a certain point, someone asked him about GC strategies and arrive can, and he just pivots to that because, uh, yeah, look, it's possible he was incoherent. It's possible he was also trying to brag to his public transit environmental friends in Montreal, the kind that he used to, I don't know, scale the CN Tower with. And he was doing this. And then, you know, when he gets called on and he walks back and says, oh, no, 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 I didn't say I don't want to find any roads. I said I don't want to fund some roads. And but but. Even that is incredibly, incredibly flawed because we have, I mentioned the population aspect here. We have a massive population boom coming to this country through immigration. The birth rate's not high, but it, the population rate is growing. So there are going to be more people. And I've been a longtime advocate of the idea that we shouldn't be centralizing our population as dramatically and aggressively in cities. Now, Look, you've got transit infrastructure in Toronto and in uh, Vancouver and to some extent in Calgary and Montreal, but you don't have that in other cities. Now, people like Stephen Gilbo would take from that, great, we need to build a subway in every city. You want to build a subway in your town of 40,000, we'll give you a billion dollars to do it. 
But the reality is that is not the way we operate. That is not feasible. That is not desirable. So if we assume that people in this country are going to need to drive to get around, which is happening with suburbanization, is happening with, happening with people living in rural parts, uh, the federal government shouldn't be doing any of this. We're not going to fund roads shtick. Now, uh, this has been criticized, and I'm very grateful it has, by some provincial premiers. Uh, Danielle Smith had very harsh words about it. Now, she and Stephen Gilbo haven't exactly been on good terms <laughs> generally, as we spoke about in my interview with her last week in Toronto. Uh, Doug Ford, who, again, has often been all buddy-buddy with the federal government, he posted on X that he was, quote, gobsmacked. He says a federal minister said they won't invest in new roads or highways. He doesn't care that you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. I do. We're building roads and highways with or without a cent from the Fed. So, uh, the federal government is uh, basically saying, yeah, we don't want to build any new roads. The provinces are saying, uh, we've got people that are in very heavily congested traffic, and I think it's probably important to have roads so these people can get around. So uh, this is, to me, quite astonishing, but not unsurprising, because this is a radical environmental activist who's ended up becoming the environment minister of this country, which under the Trudeau government is an incredibly important file, an incredibly important file. And it's one that we should be very cognizant of the government making moves on this uh, in, in the way that Gilbo has described. Now, I, I've taken a more nuanced position anytime 15 minute cities have, have come up as a topic, because the idea of a 15 minute city to me is not a problem because the government is banning you from leaving your home more than 15 minutes in either directions. The problem with 15 minute cities is that it's government trying to socially engineer a way of living which does not make economic sense and does not really align with how people choose to organize and orient their lives. And when Stephen Gilbo is talking about we need to have more walking and less driving, we need to have fewer roads and more walking paths and walking trails, he, he's talking about that exact phenomenon. He's not saying it's a ban on going 15 minutes outside your home, but he's saying it's a, a effectively that the government wants to. Uh, remember what uh, Emmanuel Macron said during COVID? He said he wanted to, I can't really use the English translation because it would be a, a naughty word on this otherwise family-friendly show, but he said he wanted to emmerde people who were critical of COVID restrictions and lockdowns, which uh, to put a sanitary translation on, he wanted to annoy the heck out of people that did not like his COVID mandate. And this is what Stephen Gilbo is doing on the in the context of uh, drivers. He wants to just make life so miserable that they are forced to adapt to this way of life and this way of organizing their lives that he's trying to impose on them. And you know what? Uh, some people may go along with it, but I think others will just not go along with it at all. And I think that you're going to see in places like Alberta, where it's lovely. One thing I absolutely love is parking in Alberta, because this is a province that has built parking spaces for pickup trucks. So it doesn't matter how bad you are at backing into a space, you'll be able to get your car in there, because it's not like these tiny rinky-dink European things. Like when we were in Davos, we had this big giant van, and we were like backing it into spaces that I, I swear were made of uh, made for smart cars. So uh, thankfully, Sean and Cosman are quite, you know, skinny. So uh, they were able to just like, you know, squeeze out uh, in between the two cars with, you know, four inches uh, between one door and the other, whereas I, you know, had to squeeze into the eight inches on the other side, which I assure you did not look pretty, but we got it done. So uh, that's kind of the Stephen Gilbo vision here is we want to make a world which is so inconvenient for drivers that they just look out the window and say, 
maybe I'll just walk. So when you want to walk from Red Deer to Calgary because uh, the government won't build a road, uh, you have Stephen Gill boat to thank for that. And uh, this is what the federal government is doing, all in the interest of public service, because you, you can always trust whenever all is said and done, government to look out for you, right? It is absolutely absurd. And just on the note of ArriveCan, because this was a development we heard from our friends at La Presse. I don't know if they're our friends, but uh, I just said that because I was feeling charitable this morning. La Presse reported that the company that uh, was responsible for delivering ArriveCan, that's GC Strategies, which has uh, two people, I believe, working for it and doesn't actually produce anything. They just subcontract it all out. So it's basically a vendor that solely exists to cash government checks. They have cashed $258 million in government checks since Justin Trudeau took office in 2015. So this company has been awarded contract after contract. ArriveCan was basically just one-fifth of their overall haul in federal money in the course of the last nine years. And we're supposed to believe that this is just the way a functioning society and a functioning country and a functioning government, well, functions. So the conservatives have said they want a full investigation into this. This was Michael Barrett this morning. So Lord Press has reported this morning uh, shocking news that the two-person uh, firm, Justin Trudeau's favorite uh, two-person uh, firm um, being used by the government for IT work that has done no actual IT work, has been paid a, a quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million in contracts uh, from the government to this two-person firm while Canadians are lined up at food banks in, in record numbers and Canadians are struggling just to feed themselves and keep the heat on. Today, Conservatives are going to be calling for the Auditor General to open an investigation into every contract, every penny that has been paid to GC Strategies because it's, uh, it, it's beyond reason that a two-person company operating out of a suburban basement could be doing $250 million in business with the federal government. And so today, that's why we're calling on the Auditor General to investigate every penny that has been paid to them. You know, I'm a firm believer in the fact that uh, government contracts should generally be awarded on an open tender. You should also have situations in which uh, you're, you're working with the people that are making the product. Now, maybe a company needs to subcontract out something very technical, but the fact that these people have made a quarter of a billion dollars on producing nothing, the only thing they produce is a bill. That is the only thing that GC strategies and companies that are modeled like that uh, create and produce. The rest, they get to go to other people to get a fraction of that money while they're sitting there and what, cashing a, a finder's fee just for, for putting this out? Like, this is how, if you ever saw that movie War Dogs with uh, Jonah, what was it? It was Jonah Hill, and I forget who the other one was. It was based on a true story. But they had, it was these two random guys from the US that started an arms dealing business. They did not make or produce or have any connection to firearms. They just sort of realized that uh, there were all these companies that were, and they could be the ones that uh, picked up the Defense Department's call and uh, coordinate it with the manufacturers and get it done. And it was this great little grift, and I'm pretty sure it ended in jail time. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that GC Strategies has done anything illegal, quite the contrary. I think the problem is the federal government either being unwilling or unable to do due diligence and realizing that they were paying someone to create something that had no interest 
in creating it at all. And in the case of ArriveCan, what was supposed to be $80,000 racked up tens of millions of dollars in costs, so much so that the Auditor General couldn't even figure out why it was and how much it was that this thing ended up costing as much. So uh, there's a cautionary tale on that. I mentioned at the outset of this program, it is Valentine's Day and nothing puts me in the mood more than talking about constitutional law. Uh, this is the two-year anniversary of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Now, Normally, this would be a bit more of a sour note, but I should also point out that it's only a few weeks back that this act and all of the things it was used to achieve were found unconstitutional by federal court. Uh, to talk about this anniversary and its implications, Tom Morazzo is back. He is the author of the People's Emergency Act, Freedom Convoy 2022. Uh, Tom, always good to talk to you. I don't know if happy anniversary is appropriate here, but uh, what what is your sort of top line reflection with all that's happened over the last two years? Oh, you're either feeling very quiet or there's an audio issue. So uh, we will try to get that sorted out in a moment. That is, yeah, I don't think Tom Morazzo can hear me there. So we'll get that sorted out. But the other thing that is related to this, and I am going to get Tom to weigh in on this, is that uh, CSIS has uh, released a report through Access to Information. Now, this was a request from the Canadian press. Now, this is where, when I read this, and I haven't read the original uh, briefing document. I only read uh, the report on it the Canadian press published. It was a report on from CSIS on the freedom movement and their perception and, and contextualization of it. And it kind of made me wonder if the intelligence community is really doing all that much of use because this is what our top secret spy agency has determined. The freedom movement began to emerge as a protest against COVID restrictions and now has generally morphed into a protest against government overreach. Wow. Good for you guys. You figured that one out. I don't want to, you know, rag on, you know, people that are, are doing a very difficult job and doing it for uh, not a lot of money and no prestige or glory. But it was kind of a weird and like, well, duh moment when they've uh, identified what anyone who's been following the evolution of this movement could have identified uh, in the last two years, which was that, you know, COVID restrictions were a symptom and not the cause of government issues. And I, I think that's probably the point that I would frame this around is that COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, all of that were government revealing its authoritarian impulse. The impulse was there. Government showed us the level of control they want to wield, the level of power they want to wield, but they hadn't really been given a pretext to wield it all before a pandemic came along. And that was what happened there. I think we have Tom Morazzo uh, for real this time. Uh, Tom, are we functioning? Are we good? No, we're not. I can't hear you now. There we okay. go. I heard that, whatever you just did there. Let's see. All right. The I'm joys of live my... media. Well, uh, as I mentioned, Tom, two-year gotcha. anniversary of the Emergencies Act. What's your perspective on that now, looking back? Uh, well, let's, I, I hope you can hear me now. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a much different atmosphere this time around because of the decision that came out from Justice Mosley a few weeks ago, which declared that the Emergency Act use or invocation was illegal um, mm -hmm. and outside of the scope of the, the law. So that has a different feeling two years after the fact than it did even a year ago when we had Justice Rouleau, who basically cited reluctantly, I don't know, 
I don't know how you want to phrase it, but sort of sided with Justin Trudeau, but sort of didn't. He gave himself a lot of wiggle room to get out of it. But yeah, so I think the 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 spring in everyone's step this year is because of the fact that Mosley's decision just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, and it, it does change the discussion uh, a, a sorry, little Andrew, bit. Sorry, Andrew, I just keep losing audio. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just wasn't talking. That might've been it. I hadn't started yet, but I'm good. The, I'm good. I think it raises the, the, an important <laughs> point here because, you know, there was a lot of skepticism, I think from, from legal scholars, even people that weren't fans of the convoy when the emergencies act came out that, okay, I don't like these guys with the trucks, but I, I really don't like this. And now that the government has doubled down in the wake of that ruling, I think it's reinvigorated that, has it not? In, in the sense that the government, even with this judicial ruling, is still saying, no, absolutely, this was the right call. We should have done this. So there's been no contrition from anyone in those ranks. No, and I've said this before, too. They're, they're going into an election cycle. So what choice do they have mm-hmm. other than they have to fight this? In, in This isn't really for them about the law or abiding by the law or accepting the decision. This is a political decision on the part of the Liberals to launch the appeal. Uh, in actuality, the proper moral ethical thing to do would be to say, yes, we, we violated the, ro- the law and we're gonna accept the court's decision. But they can't do that going into an election because they know that everybody's gonna make them wear this around their neck like a thousand pound yoke. So they don't really have a choice. They have to fight this from a political perspective only. I wanted to get your sense on this, I, I don't know if you've read, I haven't read the actual document, as I mentioned, but this uh, report I saw from the Canadian press uh, on the evolution of the freedom movement. I mean, this was kind mm-hmm. of plain as day apparent to anyone who had been watching. Uh, even, I mean, the summer of 2022, I remember you had all of these like little mini convoys popping up that were not mm-hmm. even protests. They were just summer festivals of people that had found camaraderie in folks they met during the freedom convoy online in Ottawa and elsewhere in the country. And, and I do think there was something, you know, accurate about that, that it has created a movement that really didn't exist in Canada before January, February of, of 2022. Do you think that's a, a fair characterization of what's happened? I think to go back, the best way to answer that question is to go back to the briefing note that CSIS wrote to the, uh, the cabinet in the IRG prior to invoking the Emergencies Act. CSIS disagreed with the idea of invoking the Emergencies Act for the simple reason is that they believed that it would set the conditions for an IMVE-like atmosphere within you know, the hearts and minds of Canadians. And so the spy agency themselves that are cited in this article, uh, and I find it hysterical and typical of the mainstream media that they would cite Barbara Perry of all people uh, as a source or an expert in this subject. Uh, Barbara Perry, of course, is you know connected to the anti-hate network. She makes a ridiculous amount of money teaching her theories that can't be backed up by evidence, and she's nothing more than a hate baiter. And if you want to know more, talk to Cosman, uh, one mm-hmm. of your own 
uh, excellent writers. Uh, yeah, about, and just you know, if I can give the context on there, Tom. So, so Barbara Perry had said in a report, however many years ago, that there are three hundred. I forget if it was hate groups or far right groups or far right hate groups mm -hmm. with some variation of that. And and I was like, oh wow, that's terrible. But she will not provide the list. So for all I know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Andrew Lawton show is listed as you know one of the three hundred because she won't give it. And Cosman has been in a fight with the uh, Freedom of Information Commissioner in Ontario for however long now, trying to get access to that list, which she won't provide. So I, I had to provide that little uh, footnote there. I apologize right. for cutting you off. No, that's fine. That's fine. Because it's good background, good context. And I think people should know, um, you know, the, the type of stuff that's happening in a Canadian university right now. Barbara Perry is on the Sunshine List. She makes over $200,000 a year uh, for peddling in hate baiting. Uh, she can't back up any of her claims with any evidence, but yet this sort of group within the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, they go in constant circles and they just, you know, it's a self-licking ice cream cone with that particular group of people, but yet the legacy media likes to reference them as somehow being a bunch of experts and they're not. Um, so to go, you know, back to your original question, you know, CSIS, CSIS said, if you invoke the Emergencies Act, given the the state of canada right now the level of anxiety you are going to not provoke i don't want to use the the word provoke but you're going to disenfranchise canadians even further i mean remember millions of canadians supported the freedom convoy going to ottawa and they donated millions and millions of dollars and so when you've got that many canadians supporting a movement which, by the way, is a manifestation of the tyrannical behavior that every level of government uh, provoked in the Canadian population. So as a reaction, the convoy came into existence to go back to or to go to Ottawa to fight for their own freedoms. Now, when you invoke the Emergencies Act, they doubled down on the, the very tyrannical behavior that the convoy went to Ottawa to fight against. So... Of course, CSIS was correct in their assumption that it was going to disenfranchise more Canadians. But to say that it's producing an IMVE, I think, is fundamentally flawed and a little bit ridiculous. Uh, and it feeds into the, the liberal media's narratives. Uh, of course, the media, as you know better than I do, supports the liberal government. You got the anti-hate network that is, a, again, a self-licking ice cream cone that just perpetuates the same garbage in a giant circle. And CSIS, who works for the federal government, they're just sort of contributing in a, let's say, uh, an overt manner to this, this narrative. So yeah. it's, it's really frustrating to watch this, uh, read articles like that, to be perfectly honest, because what I haven't seen in an article yet, uh, to this day, on two years of the anniversary of this invocation, I haven't seen one article from mainstream media come out and say, why did Canadians go to Ottawa in the first place? Let's get to the root of that question before everything else, because I think what happened yeah. after was secondary to the reasons that the convoy even went there. Was there IMVE? No, it was Canadians who had a protected charter right to do what they did in Ottawa. And that's why they used the mechanism with our own constitution to go and fight for their rights. It wasn't IMVE. It was abiding by the principles of this country in our, our most fundamental document in terms of outlining our rights. 
to push back against the government. And that's what they did. It's not IMDb. Yeah, and, and just, just for people not familiar with that term, that stands for ideologically motivated violent extremism. Mm-hmm. And I, I, re- I reject that characterization. But the, the part that I found interesting was just CISA stating the obvious that, you know, this wasn't, this was not just about vaccine mandates. And this was not just about COVID restrictions. And, and the mm-hmm. fact that it took them, you know, so long to, to seemingly come up with that uh, position, I, I found quite odd. And, and you know, to, to put this in the bigger and broader context here, over the course of the last two years, uh, government has dug its heels in on the very things that it started doing throughout the COVID era and really did during the the convoy's time in Ottawa. And I think there, there's been a lot more, I mean, the reason you see more resistance is because there's been a lot more stuff that needs to be resisted. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I read that article and I looked at the little laundry list of, of things that they were really referring to as conspiracy theories. I'm sorry, but they're not conspiracies. I mean, you've got presidential campaigns in the United States right now talking about a lot of these issues. Okay, they're real things. Canadians now more than ever, probably in our nation's history, are more politically aware and more um aware of the actions of ngos like the wef the world health organization even the un uh, to some extent you know the actions of the the um uh i think it's the united nations assembly like they are deliberately doing things and canadians are just paying attention so how is that some sort of ridiculous right-wing extremism that's what you call an engaged citizenship or citizenry. That's what that's about. And it's not IMVE or any other thing. Canadians yeah, one of the, are one more of them on that list by the way the actions Tom, of the government. Opposition to communism. They list as being a problem. Like that, they, they, I found this hilarious. The line is well this yeah. perceived tyranny is widespread across the movement other narratives are becoming increasingly mm-hmm. common among adherents. Uh, the brief says citing opposition to uh, drag queen story times, perceived increase in control by institutions like the UN and the World Economic Forum, and communism. So yeah. if, if you believe that communism is a bad thing, you may be an ideologically motivated violent extremist. It, it is absolutely bizarre to see them actually put this into print, isn't it? Like we we brag about being this socialist country. And I think for a lot of Canadians that that had always a different meaning. It, it's it's sort of a hidden meaning, but the very you know essence of socialism is is really the first step before communism, and so Canadians are waking up to a very different definition of socialism that they thought they lived under, and realizing no, you know we are sliding more and more into an authoritarian type of state. And again, to to use you as a reference personally. Look at what they're doing with the CRTC. Look at the steps that they're saying for our own good is to fight misinformation and disinformation. Therefore, we're going to regulate the internet, the news that you can see, independent uh, journalists like yourself. Okay, that is, you know, that's more tyrannical. That's communism. That is the control of information to your citizens under the guise of doing it for our own safety, as if though we're not smart enough or educated enough or even sophisticated enough to determine or make decisions for ourselves based on the news or the information that we receive. We can't make our own decision apparently without the help of the the communist liberal government of Canada. Very well said. Tom Morazzo, author of The People's Emergency Act. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew.
Thank you. All right. Thank you again to Tom. I've been looking forward to this one since we lined this up. David Millard Haskell has been on the show in the past. He's a, a tremendous free speech fighter at the Laurier, well, at Laurier University, which, uh, as Lindsay Shepard's ordeal, has revealed desperately, desperately, desperately needs uh, fierce free speech fighters. So he's been in a, a lonely but not completely uh, solitary group there. He's got a couple of others on campus that have been in the trenches with him. Uh, but he has also taken aim in a, a very academically rigorous and thoughtful way at diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, which has become a very common refrain on university and college campuses, but also we've seen DEI programs in the workforce. Certainly government has been a significant purveyor of these programs. And if you look at this, there was a, a new study that came out that was written by David Haskell from the Aristotle Foundation. We've had Mark Milkey, who founded the Aristotle Foundation on this show in the past. Uh, the study finds that diversity training is divisive, counterproductive, and unnecessary. So they actually have looked at, it's called a meta-analysis. He, he's looked at a number of other studies that have been done on DEI programs and the like over the course of, uh, I'll, I'll ask him precisely, but over the course of several years. And he has found in looking at this that uh, there is not a correlation, not a positive correlation between the presence of DEI programs, instruction, uh, ideology, and outcomes that align with what DEI is supposed to do. So in a nutshell, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs do not cause there to be more diversity, more inclusion, and more equity. Now, a sensible person would look at that and say, what on earth is the point? But the interesting thing is that this study found that DEI training reinforces existing biases and doesn't eliminate them. So not only does it not help, but it likely makes things worse. So that to me is, I think, a very, very important element of this. And again, in a, a serious society, we would be uh, having people and having academic institutions interested in studying this and, in, and interested in really probing and interrogating whether their attitudes and approaches were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But instead, we just funnel massive, massive, massive amounts of money uh, as evidenced by Richard Bilkstow's ordeal. Now, this is quite a, a tragic case, but Richard Bilkstow, if that name is not burned into your memory, I hope it will be after this. He is the Toronto principal who was a very progressive, uh, progressive, open-minded guy. And he took issue with the messaging that was being put to him and other Toronto educators, uh, putting to them this very grim picture of diversity in Canada by uh, an instructor named Kike Ojo Thompson. And Richard Bilkstow just very politely said, well, actually, I, I disagree with your premise. And no, I've been in the US, I've been in Canada. Uh, Canada is not a more racist place than in the US. And you know he does this. And he's then accused at a subsequent meeting of reinforcing and upholding white supremacy by Ms. Ojo Thompson. And so he was bullied. He tragically tragically ended up taking his life. His lawyer, Lisa Bildy, who's also been an alumna of this show, has said that it was the bullying that he went through as a result of that uh, that led to it. Now, there is outstanding litigation and that claim has not been tested or, or proven in court, I should make a point of saying. But certainly, even without him ending his life, uh, you could hear the audio of that session and read the transcript and say, wow, th this is a guy who was bullied because DEI did not leave space for dialogue. DEI did not leave space to have a conversation. 
DEI did not and does not leave space to engage with these issues in a way that most people think, I, I, I hope most people, I don't actually know if it's most people, but in a way that I, I hope and suspect most people would want to do. And, and that's the problem with this. So, I, I mean, people have made the comparison that DEI is just an, not an acronym, an anagram. That's you know, when you move around the letters. I learned about that from a Dan Brown book, I think, probably the Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons or whatever. But uh, it is an anagram of DIE. So uh, David Millard Haskell has said in his work that uh, DEI needs to DIE. So uh, we will uh, we'll talk about that with him. But it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. And I, I did a, at one point I was going to write a book about uh, the proliferation of political correctness. And in the end, for, for a number of reasons, I, I walked away from it. But I, I did through that process, a deep dive into it. And the thing that I was fa finding that was so fascinating is that people in universities were trying to warn about the trend in universities uh, in university thinking. They were trying to warn about this years ago. I mean, we're talking decades ago. Like Alan Bloom wrote a, a tremendous book in, I think it was 1986 or 1987. It was in, in and around there called The Closing of the American Mind. And talk about a book that has proven uh, prescient and prophetic. It was a book in which Alan Bloom, a university professor, was, was he was seeing the beginnings of what is now commonplace and what I think has probably gotten so crazy that even Bloom would have been shocked by, but he was seeing the beginnings of it in the 80s. And when in the 90s, we had the heyday of political correctness, like that town in, uh, I think actually it might, might have been San Francisco, not a town that banned uh, using the word manhole because it was gendered. And uh, people saying, oh, no, 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 you can't have a brainstorm because that's offending epileptics. Or uh, you can't say blackboard because that's going to be racist. Like all of these things that almost seem silly and novel now. This was all a product of that political correctness craze in the 1990s. And we all sort of made the mistake back then of just chuckling at it and laughing and rolling our eyes and not realizing that it was a step towards something that has become quite significant. So I, I think you can draw a direct line between the people who say you can't say manhole or blackboard in the early 90s and the people saying that you are a white supremacist if you reject that Canada is a systemically racist country in 2024. And you can draw a direct line because that's what happens if ideology like this goes unchecked. That is what happens if you do not question or interrogate or push back or challenge these things. And this is, I think, precisely why so many of the problems we're seeing on campuses now have proliferated into the so-called real world. I mean, again, the fact that there are companies that are offering the same sort of trappings of university campuses, companies that are offering things like, oh, we're going to do therapy rooms and we're going to you know, do all of this stuff and we're going to bring in the dogs. I mean, look, I love dogs. I would love it if someone brought a therapy dog to my workplace. But the idea that I could not function without that is kind of what we're seeing happen here. And look, anyone who's ever been in a hiring capacity, and I hear from people all the time who have gone through this, where they, they talk to young people that, again, are products of this university environment. They're products of this. And they're looking around and seeing like, why, why on earth has this been allowed to exist? And the reason it has is because you have a society and you have a culture that did not realize what was happening and, and refused to kind of hit head on 
when something was happening on campus. So there's a reason at True North, we have a series and my colleague Ellie Kenton Nantel is the one predominantly driving it called Campus Watch, where we write about stories of, of campus craziness. And over the last couple of months, a lot of it has been uh, anti-Semitism related. But we have talked about this time and time again on this show, and we've talked about it on True North, because you need to kind of understand the hotbed of this issue and where it is coming from so that you can stop it from uh, really taking over later on. So I, unfortunately, this is the second day in a row we've had some uh, major guest issues here. We were unable to get uh, David Millard Haskell on today. Hopefully we can get things sorted out and have him on the program tomorrow. Uh, but if uh, in the absence of that, if you do check out uh, TNC.news, we have a, a new story about his study, which was quite significant. And we will, of course, delve into a bit more detail if we're able to get him back on the show. But uh, we'll end things there. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.